0: Large, hairy bodies with eight long, hairy legs and eight black, beady eyes. They exist in our world, inhabiting dark spaces, in sheds, under houses, in attics, and in our nightmares. Most of them you can squash with the bottom of your shoe, but some, the ones that survive to be very old, Grow into monsters. If the idea of those creepy, hairy legs crawling across your body freaks you out, imagine staring into the black eyes of one that has grown to the size of a house. You're no longer the predator, you're now the prey. Welcome to Freaky Folklore. The podcast where we discover the horrifying legends across the world and tell terrifying tales of monsters both ancient and modern. Today we are discussing the Suchigumo, an eight-legged hairy arachnid from Japanese folklore. This show is part of the EerieCast Podcast Network. Find more terrifying tales at EerieCast.com and be sure to follow us on Spotify or your favorite podcasting service. You can leave an honest review on iTunes too. The more we get, the more we grow, and hopefully the more monsters we can explore. If you would like to submit an encounter or suggestions for future episodes, you can email them to carmencarion at gmail.com. That is C A R M A N C A R R I O N at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram for information on future episodes. Most of the villagers in Ambo thought seven-year-old Kasumi was a strange child. On days when the sun was shining and other kids were out playing, she would be hiding in her room reading books about snakes and spiders, but as soon as the sky turned gray and rain began to pour, she would be out splashing through puddles. Her parents owned a little bakery shop, and they tried to keep her busy, but she would collect bugs and spiders and keep them in her pockets. One time she had found a newly hatched nest of baby spiders and hid them in a cornet. Her mother, not knowing, sold the cornet to a customer, who almost had a heart attack when she bit into the sweet roll, and tiny little spiders came crawling out. Her father decided that she just needed a pet. So he took her across the sea, two hours by ferry to Kagoshima, to a pet store. He expected to be bringing back a puppy or a kitten, but instead Kasumi fell in love with the large, hairy tarantulas that the shop had for sale. He cringed when the shop owner placed one of the dark brown eight-legged creatures on Kasumi's hand, but she giggled as the hideous thing crawled up her arm and neck onto the top of her head. It was a large tarantula, and the owner explained that he had no idea how old it was, but that they could live to be up to 25 years old or more. I will call him Kenzo, she exclaimed suddenly. Even though the spider gave him the creeps, he couldn't say no to his precious daughter after seeing how happy it made her. What was the harm anyway, as long as it had a cage to stay in? Her mother didn't have the same reaction to Kasumi's new pet. She went into hysterics after one look at the creature. Kasumi cried and begged to keep it, promising to never take it out of its cage. So her mother, too, eventually gave in. Kasumi didn't keep her promise. She took Kenzo out of his cage several times a day to play. She would let him crawl freely around the room while she studied. Neither of her parents were aware, since she kept her door locked. A year passed and Kasumi took such good care of Kenzo that her parents practically forgot he was there. Kasumi caught most of his food on her way home from school. He loved beetles and grasshoppers, but he was growing so fast it was getting difficult to catch enough to keep him satisfied. He was nearly as big as a catcher's mitt. Late one fall evening, when the weather was beginning to get cold, Kasumi was late getting home. The colder weather was making insects harder to find. All she had managed to catch was half a dozen crickets. She didn't know how she was going to continue to feed Kenzo, and she didn't want to have to ask her parents for help, because if they saw how big he had gotten, they would really freak out. When she got home, she found the top of Kenzo's cage ajar, and he wasn't inside. In a panic, she searched all around her room and in her closet. He was nowhere to be found. She then began to search the rest of the house, but still, there was no sign of him. Their kitchen had a doggy door from the previous owners, and the best she could guess was he may have escaped through it. So she headed out the door in search of him. She walked completely around the back of the house and to the front where the bakery was located and saw no sign of him. She was about to head back inside to have another look around her room when she heard someone crying. She followed the sound to the flower shop next door. There was a little girl sitting by the entryway with her face in her hands. Her shoulders shook as she sobbed. Normally Kasumi wouldn't care, but she had a strange feeling. So she asked the girl, What's wrong? Why are you crying? The little girl between sobs told her, that her cat had three kittens yesterday. But when she went to check on them, two of them were gone. Kasumi knew instantly what may have happened to the kittens, and without saying another word to the girl, she ran back to her house and straight to her bedroom. The lid on Kenzo's cage had fallen to the floor, and inside she found him, devouring what was left of a tiny white kitten. At first she was upset, but she knew that he was just hungry, and the more she thought about it, the more she knew this was the solution to her problem. The village had an abundance of cats and dogs, many of them small enough for Kinzo to eat without a problem. Now she had a way to feed him without having to ask her parents. The winter was long and sad for many villagers. Pets began to vanish without a trace. First, it was the smallest ones, tiny puppies and kittens. But then the larger grown terriers and house cats began to come up missing as well. Kasumi was the only one who knew where the missing animals were going. But she wasn't worried about any of that. She had problems of her own. Kenzo had outgrown his cage. She had moved him to her closet, where he happily made his new home. But his time there would be short. Kasumi was at school when her mother decided it was time to clean out her daughter's closet before buying her new clothes for the coming spring. When she opened the door and turned on the light, she screamed in terror at what she saw. A tarantula, the size of a large dog, was squatting in the corner ready to pounce. She slammed the door just in the nick of time and Kenzo's body made a loud thud as he bounced off of it. Her husband came running at the sound of the commotion. In tears, she told him what she had seen. After she calmed down, he sent her to the neighbors to wait while he grabbed a shovel, the only thing he could find, and headed to Kasumi's bedroom closet. He opened the door slowly and backed up, shovel in hand, ready to swing. He didn't have to wait long. Kenzo jumped and would have landed right on his face, if he hadn't batted his body so hard with the shovel that it sent him flying through the glass window of the bedroom and out onto the sidewalk. He watched as the monstrous arachnid gained its legs and crawled off into the forest behind the house. Moments later, he began to notice the horrid stench of rock coming from the closet. Still nervous from the encounter that had just took place, he cautiously approached the door turned on the light and looked inside. What he found sent him running from the room, gagging. When Kasumi got home later that day, she was at first distraught at the loss of her beloved pet. And then she became enraged. She ran out into the woods and searched for her eight-legged friend, but he was gone. Rumors began to spread around the village, and Kasumi's behavior only fueled them. She was withdrawn and cold to everyone she encountered, especially her parents. In an act of desperation, they sent her away to live with her grandmother in Kagoshima, and there she remained until her last year of school.
1: This episode is sponsored by The Dead Files from Travel Channel. If you're listening to anything on the EerieCast network, odds are you love ghost stories. That's why I think you'll love The Dead Files from Travel Channel. Join hosts Amy Allen and Steve Deshavi as they investigate paranormal activity haunting real people and homes across the U.S. Each host offers a unique and exciting perspective for every case. Amy is a medium, seeing and speaking to those who are no longer in the world of the living and Steve is a retired homicide detective who uses public records and witness testimony to piece together the history of the haunted location. Each episode of The Dead Files features a different, real haunting to possibly help the family struggling with its effects. One episode on Falconer, New York, deals with a family who keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They frequently witness a shadow figure lurking around their home. Amy and Steve receive their call and investigate with Amy using her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry. While Steve, separately, researches the history of the home, only to discover several previous residents who lived at the home died, confirming Amy's own findings. After their investigation, Amy and Steve must conclude with whether the house is safe to remain in, or if it's time to get out. I really love the deferring perspectives and skill sets between the two hosts, And I think that's why The Dead Files is a must-listen podcast for any fan of the paranormal and supernatural. Listen to The Dead Files wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Fear of spiders is incredibly common. Most of us avoid them when we can and squash them when we can't. But what if you encounter a spider that is large enough to catch and devour you? There are tarantulas on practically every continent, and they're located all over the world. In the areas where they are native, they provide an inspiration for folklore, horror stories, legends, and mythology. In Japan, tarantulas and spiders have a long and fascinating history. There are no native tarantula species in Japan, but Japanese folklore includes a giant spider that acts like a tarantula. Suchigumo are enormous spiders that can grow to an incredible size, large enough to take on an entire army. In fact, the term Tsuchigumo is used in historical documents composed during the warring states, the Sengoku period, to refer to rebel factions. These legendary creatures come from tarantulas that live well past a natural age and eventually become yokai. Before becoming Yokai, they are known as the Purse Web Spider in English and are found all over the Japanese islands and throughout much of the world. They grow to a monstrous size, able to catch much larger prey, especially humans. Suchigumo are monsters that dwell in mountains and woodlands. They ambush passing victims from their silken houses. They use deception and deceit like other spider Yokai to fool people. The Jorgumo use their sexuality to entice young men, while the Suchigumo have access to a wider range of tricks, and usually greater goals. These terrifying creatures are most likely to be found in caves, forests, and mountains, and their diets consist of humans and pretty much any animal they can get their hands on. Suchigumo use illusions and trickery to capture their prey. They employ illusions to conceal their webs and masquerade as attractive women to entice men. Sometimes songs are used to seduce men. Their webs, which resemble tunnels, typically contain human skull fragments from previous meals. The most common way believed to effectively defeat a sujigumo is to slice it open with a sword or katana. This will cause any illusions it has cast to dissipate, and if it's carrying eggs inside it, the human baby-sized offspring will be killed as well. But like many other common spiders, they are also venomous, and it uses that venom to incapacitate its prey, leaving them helpless even if they realize how much danger they're in. As early as the Middle Ages, these giant spider yokai began to be depicted as large mythical spider-like beasts. In Japanese, Tsuchigumo translates literally as dirt or earth spider. Tsuchigumo has been portrayed in a variety of ways throughout history, but it's frequently characterized as a beast with the body and face of a demon and the limbs of a tiger. However, most depictions of Tsuchigumo only feature the creature as a huge, monstrous spider. Originally, the Tsuchigumo was a term for people who didn't show allegiance to the Emperor of Japan, describing them as a scruffy people with disproportionately long limbs and living in holes in the ground. The racist overtones would fade away with time, and the satirical caricature would eventually turn into a terrifying monster with a reputation for ensnaring people for food and breeding. There's considerable debate over who came first, the historical clans or the legendary spider species. One idea is based on the fact that people who waged war against the Imperial court were referred to as Oni, both in humor and as a tactic to demonize opponents of the court by literally referring to them as demons, beginning with the earliest historical documents. Numerous confrontations with Tsuchigumo are described in the writings of the illustrious warrior Minamato no Yuramitsu. He is one of the earliest Minamato, a member of a powerful family in Japan that ruled as shoguns. He's of historical note for his military exploits and is known for quelling the bandits of Oyama. In one story, a transformed into a servant boy to deliver the renowned warrior venom in the shape of medication. When his wounds weren't healing and the medicine didn't seem to be working, Yorimitsu suspected foul play. He slashed his sword at the boy, who then fled into the forest. The attack broke the powerful illusion which the spider had laid on Yorimitsu, and he found that he was covered in spider webs. Yorimitsu and his retainers followed the trail of the spider's blood into the mountains, where they discovered a gigantic, monstrous arachnid, dead from the wound Yorimitsu had inflicted. In another legend, Asuchigumo took the form of a beautiful warrior woman and led an army of yokai against Japan. Yorimitsu and his men met the yokai army on the battlefield. With his experience in such matters, Yorimitsu attacked the woman general first. The blow struck, her army vanished, and it was merely an illusion. The warriors followed the woman to a cave in the mountains, where she transformed into a giant spider. With one swing of his sword, Yorimitsu sliced her abdomen open. Thousands of baby spiders the size of human infants swarmed out from her belly. Yorimitsu and his retainers slew every one of the spiders and returned home victorious. In another version of this latter tale, the commander Yorimitsu was brought by his servant, Watanabe, to Tsuna to go in the direction of Rinde Field, a mountain north of Kyoto, where they encountered a flying skull. Yorimitsu and the others decided to follow it because they thought it was suspicious. When they reached the old estate, they encountered a number of unusual yokai that tormented them. When dawn arrived, a beautiful woman appeared and was about to trick them. But Yoramitsu, not giving in, slashed it with his katana, and the woman vanished, leaving behind white blood. Following the trail of blood, they came across a cave in a mountainside where a large spider lived, revealing its identity as the source of all the monsters that had risen. After a prolonged battle, Yoramitsu severed the spider's head, and its stomach burst open to reveal 1,990 severed heads. Numerous little spiders were also crawling off its flanks. And when they looked closer at them, they discovered roughly 20 additional skulls. The spiders we all know are eight-legged predatory anthropods that often lead solitary lives. They use their webs to catch prey, generally insects and other tiny animals. And they rarely attack humans, unless cornered or they accidentally or deliberately antagonize them. The majority of characters and spider-based monsters, regardless of their morality, are shown as females because females are larger than males and are the ones who weave the webs. Although there are few exceptions, generally when the male is fortunate enough to escape, most female spiders will typically eat their mates after mating and give their liquefied remains to their offspring after they hatch. While in mythologies of other cultures such as Sumerian, ancient Grecian, ancient Roman, Aboriginal Australian and many Native American, spiders are depicted as either harmless or outright benevolent creatures. Other ancient beliefs portrayed them as tricksters and villains. The 1842 Biedermeier tale The Black Spider by the late Jeremias Gotthelf, where the spider symbolizes wicked deeds and portrays the moral consequences of forging a contract with the devil, is perhaps where spiders first earned a reputation as emblems of evil. A spider was also notably depicted as the major antagonist of the children's nursery rhyme, Little Miss Muffet, in which the title character is scared by a giant spider, which drives her to run away. Because they are perceived as frightening and predatory creatures, spiders are frequently used as the bad guy in horror and fantasy stories. They're also frequently used as symbols for Halloween. Enormous man-eating spiders frequently appear as adversaries in works of science fiction, fantasy, and horror literature. Examples include Shelob from The Lord of the Rings, Aragog from the Harry Potter series, Kumonga from the Godzilla series, and the real Pennywise It from Stephen King's It, not to mention the 2002 monster comedy movie Eight-Legged Freaks. The Cthulhu mythos includes the spider god Atlak Naka, also known as the Spinner in Darkness, who appears in Clark Ashton Smith's novels. Atlaknaka is a massive spider with a human like visage that spends ages weaving a web across a sizable underground abyss. The world will supposedly come to an end when the web is fully developed. In cryptozoology, there exist rumors of a Congolese giant spider known as the Jiba Fofi, with reports coming in as early as the 1890s. The Jibofofi is said to feed on mostly birds, antelope, and other small to medium-sized animals. However, as is often the case with cryptids, they are also known to have a taste for humans. Spiders are one of my biggest fears, coming second only to scorpions. We all have that one thing that makes our skin crawl with a single thought. Anything with more than four legs freaks me out, substantially, and arachnids have always been at the top of my list. There was a heavy mist surrounding Yakushima Island as the Jet Bull made its approach. Some may look at the mist and the gray skies and see an overcast and dull day, but Kasumi thought it was magical. She had grown up on the island in the town of Onbo, and even when she was a child she loved the rainy days the most. Her parents had sent her away to live with her grandmother when she was only eight years old. They had hoped she'd forget that they had broken her heart when they ran off the best friend she ever had. But Kasumi hadn't forgotten. Instead, she had vowed to go back and find her friend. He had taken shelter in the forest all those years ago. There was a good chance that he hadn't survived the winter of that year, but she had to try. Her father was waiting for her at the dock. He greeted her with a cold nod and carried her bags to the cab that was waiting for them. It was a quiet drive as neither spoke the entire trip to Onbo. Her mother was genuinely happy to see her. She had been waiting at the door to the bakery, watching for their arrival. When Kasumi stepped out of the cab, her mother embraced her. "'I've missed you, my daughter,' she whispered in her ear. Dinner was awkward as her father remained silent throughout the meal, while her mother chattered away asking her questions about her studies, if she had many friends, and if she had met any suitable young men. Kasumi had learned to act the way people expected her to, and she replied to each question as politely as possible. Her father had yet to speak to her, and even though she didn't really care, she brought it up to her mother while they were doing dishes. "'Why does Dad hate me so much, Mom?' she asked. "'I was just a kid back then. I didn't mean for any of it to happen. I didn't even know that it was wrong.' She lied. "'After you left, the animals quit disappearing, but not long after, people began to vanish.' Your dad feels responsible. Mom, you don't really think. She began, but her mother shushed her. Let's not speak of it anymore. It would have been disrespectful to press her further. Kasumi would just have to find other ways to get more information on these missing people. That night in her room, she used her phone to search for any stories of missing people from Onbo Village and was shocked at what she had found. The first one happened only a week after she had left. A four-year-old boy had disappeared. He'd been playing in the snow with his older sister when she went inside to get something. When she came back, he was gone. It wasn't like someone had gone missing every day or even every week, but over the last 10 years, there had been more than a dozen people go missing on the island of Yakushima. She also found a story that claimed the population of Sika deer had dropped drastically over the years and the sinking feeling in the pit of her stomach began to grow. The island was roughly 17 miles long and 16 miles wide, so for that many people to go missing was bizarre, but since many of them had been tourists, it was written off as accidents and suicides, but there had never been any bodies recovered. Kasumi had wanted to find her friend, but now she feared that Kinzo may have become more of a monster than a pet. Was it possible that he was responsible for all of this? She had no idea what she was going to do, but she had to do something. Kasumi went to bed and tried to sleep, but her dreams were plagued with nightmares of being stalked by a large, hairy creature that wanted to make her its next meal. The next morning, she was up early, not really sleeping much at all the night before. She grabbed her old school backpack and dumped it out on the bed, and then began to fill it with the things she thought she may need to spend an entire day in the forest. The house was quiet and she knew her parents had already went to work in the bakery it had always been this way baker's hours started much earlier than other people's their home took up the rooms behind the bakery and the smells of fresh bread and pastries filled the house causing a nostalgia that kasumi hadn't expected she remembered happier times times before kinzo and before being sent away even though she knew she was alone she crept through the house in search of her dad's foil that he used to keep in the corner of the living room. It was something he'd saved from his high school days on the fencing team. She looked everywhere and failed to find it, but then she remembered that he kept a small, short-handled axe in his tool shed, just outside the back door. That would work better than the foil, because it would fit easily in her backpack. Once she had everything she could think of stuffed into the pack, she quietly exited out the back of the house. The only sound that she made was the rusty squeak of the old screen door, which caused her to pause and listen to see if anyone had heard. She then snuck off into the forest that began just behind their home. It was still early enough that it felt like nighttime in the forest. It was eerily quiet as the crickets even halted their chirping as she walked through the moss-covered foliage. Kasumi didn't have a plan, and she didn't even know how Kinzo would react if she found him. Would he remember her? Would she be able to kill this creature that had once been her dearest friend tarantulas were nocturnal and only hunted at night so the daylight that was approaching would be to her advantage he would have found a safe quiet place to sleep by the time she found him if she found him the island was small but had many places for a creature kenzo's size to hide there were the trees many of which were thousands of years old and huge that had roots above ground that you could use as shelter. There was also the Akiyoshido cave, but it was well known to tourists, so it might be a less likely place for him to make a home. She'd been hiking through the forest for more than an hour when she began to get the feeling she was being followed. She stopped and listened, but heard nothing. Deciding that she was being paranoid, she moved on. The day wore on with no sign of any spider, small or giant in size. What was odd, though, was that the forest when she was young had been thriving with sika deer and macaque monkeys, but she hadn't seen or heard even one. At midday, she rested and ate a sausage pan that her mother had left out for breakfast. After washing it down with bottled water, she set off again. She had to be getting close to the cave, but it had been so many years since she had made this hike, she wasn't sure. Sometime afternoon, when the sun was at its highest in the sky, She heard a scream cut through the forest. It sounded like a man, and he sounded like he was in pain. She followed the sound, which led her back in the direction she had come from, and the screams of agony grew. Goosebumps popped up across the skin on her arms as she began to realize that the screams sounded very familiar. As she rounded the path through several large old trees, she was stopped by a strange tree trunk in the middle of the path that she hadn't seen before. She looked at it closely, running her hand down the side of it. It was about as thick in diameter as a telephone pole. It was warm to the touch and seemed to shiver as she ran her hand across it. Moans caught her attention again, and she looked not more than six feet away and saw her father laying on the ground holding his shoulder. Blood was trickling slowly from a wound that he was trying to cover with his hand. She ran to him and bent down to help but when he saw her, he began to yell, Watch out, he's above you! Confused, she stopped and began to look around. The only thing she saw was several more of those strange dark tree trunks. But suddenly, they began to move, and a shadow engulfed the area around her and her father. She froze in fear as the hairs on the back of her neck began to stand on end. Slowly, she raised her head to look above them, the Shadow was made by Kinzo, but he was much larger than she could have ever imagined. He was the size of a house, and each of those large hairy poles were his legs. Just as she made the realization, the giant spider swooped down with its pincer jaws and tried to bite her, but she jumped and rolled away before it could pierce her body with its fangs. Her father was yelling, trying to draw the spider's attention away from his daughter and it worked for a moment, just long enough for Kasumi to get the axe from her backpack. Kinzo was about to sink his fangs into her dad's chest when she struck a hard blow to one of his long legs, causing green goo to shoot out all over her. The spider screamed out in pain and anger, a sound so loud that it must have been heard all over the island. But it wasn't enough to stop him, it was just enough to make him really mad. He began stomping and biting all around her, but she managed to dodge him every time. Her father began to scream and kick, trying everything he could to lure the giant monster away from Kasumi, but it wasn't working. Kasumi continued to dodge, and when she got the opportunity, she hacked at one of the creature's legs again. But it was so thick, and he was moving so fast, all she managed to do was leave a surface wound. Her father had finally gone quiet and she chanced to look in his direction to make sure he was okay, only to find that he had pulled himself up to his feet and had pulled out the fencing foil that she had been looking for earlier. She knew then what she had to do, but it would be dangerous for her and her father. After the next attack from the spider's jaws, while he raised his head preparing for another bite, she ran to her father and took the foil from his hand. Kenzo followed her movements and swooped down with his fangs in their direction. Kasumi met him with the foil and sent it piercing through one of his large black eyes. The spider screamed again and Kasumi, still hanging onto the foil, was slung hard against a tree. Kenzo fell to the ground with the crashing sound of many trees falling at once, and Kasumi took the chance to run to him. She pulled the foil from his wounded eye and stabbed it through another. He was writhing and screaming the entire time. He tried to claw at his eyes with his giant legs, but he had become entangled in the trees around him. Each swipe fell short and allowed Kasumi to send six more piercing jabs to each of his other eyes. He was completely blinded when she finally buried the full on the top of his hard, hairy head. Kasumi ran to her dad and threw her arms around him and was helping him up when they heard a rattling sound. It was the sound of hundreds of long, hairy legs approaching. That's when she realized that her pet Kinzo had not been a he, but instead was a she. Thank you for listening to Freaky Folklore, the podcast about mankind's horrifying legends and myths. Don't forget to follow Freaky Folklore on Spotify and iTunes. If you can, leave the show an honest review on iTunes to help us grow. Freaky Folklore is part of the EerieCast Podcast Network, the home for listeners who love to feel scared. Go to EerieCast.com to find other terrifying podcasts, such as Destination Terror and Tales from the Breakroom. If you'd like to submit an encounter or suggestions for future episodes, you can email them to CarmenCarrion at gmail.com. That is C-A-R-M-A-N-C-A-R-R-I-O-N at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram for information on future episodes. Tune in next week as we discuss the Michigan Dog Man, a canine-like creature with the head of a dog but the body of a man. Until next time, stay safe out there because this world is a strange one.